0: The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. You are listening to The Paul Leslie Hour. As of this very episode, we are officially in our 16th year of circulation. On this transmission, we are joined by one of the most influential, timeless, soulful saxophonists in the world. Mr. Lou Donaldson, known as Sweet Papa Lou by his many admirers and fans. He is an alto saxophonist, composer, a recording artist with a very rich discography. He's released approximately 50 studio albums. He's also celebrated as a live performer, a band leader. He's worked with the greats from Jimmy Smith, George Benson, Grant Green, just to name a couple. Jazz critic and author Will Friedwald wrote, My first impulse is always to describe Lou Donaldson as the greatest alto saxophonist in the world. The New York Times called him the leading exponent of the soul jazz approach. Speaking with him today is one of the remarkable events in my life, and I am so grateful to have been blessed to say these words. Welcome, Lou Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So how are you today? I'm okay. That's good to hear. So why do you do it? Why do you make music?
1: (laughs) I'm almost retired now. (laughs) (laughs) I did it because my mother was a music teacher. And as a kid, I used to hear, you know, she used to give piano lessons. And I used to hear piano. 24 hours a day. (laughs) I never played it. I never wanted to play it because she had a switch. And when the little kids would miss notes, she'd wrap them across the knuckles with that switch. (laughs) (laughs) So one day she told me, she said, Lewis, you know, you got uh, more talent than anybody that even comes here to take lessons. And I said, how do you know that? He said, because when the kids are humming the little, little etudes, I used to be humming, the, I used to be singing them. And she said, you, I said, well, I just memorized all the things. She said, no, no, you had to have a foot good ear to pick it up, you know. She said, so you must be musically inclined. She I said, I know, you know, I know you're not going to study piano." <laughs> so she got me a clarinet, and that started it all.
0: So you started on the clarinet. Right. What did you think of the clarinet? Was it something you took to right away?
1: No, it was, uh, I used to go to see the uh, Christmas Eve concert, you know, in in our town. And our town is Baden, B-A-D-I-N, North Carolina, which was the home of that time. Alcor Aluminum. And uh, nothing in that, in that town but uh, but that plant. And they had a big band, uh, all white, of course, back in those days, you know. Everything was segregated. But I used, my mother used to take me there, and she used to speak with the director, a guy named Leo Gabriel. And uh, he would use her sometimes when she needed uh, some piano pieces, you know, to work on because she was... Classically trained. And uh, I used to see the band, and he said, well, what instrument would you like to play? I said, the clarinet. (laughs) It fascinated me to see that clarinet, the sound, you know.
0: (laughs) As you mentioned, you're from Baden, North Carolina. Right. If you could tell the listeners, how would you describe your life growing up in North Carolina? What was the atmosphere?
1: I was a happy-go-lucky kid. My mother was a school teacher, and my father was a minister of a couple of churches, you know. And uh, I had uh, two sisters and a brother, two boys, two girls. And uh a little town, you know, it's about 30,000 people. If you count the chickens and the hogs, you know. <laughs> and... and and everybody knew everybody way back in those days. It was depression, you know, when I was born. I was born in 26. I never realized it because, you know, I was too young because everybody in the town at that time worked in the plant, so everybody knew everybody, you know, and so it was like an integrated town. actually sort of like it. I never saw anything that the average person, uh, the average black person went through you know, during that time. We didn't go through it in that town. It was just great. I was a baseball player. I loved to play baseball. In fact, they named the uh, baseball field down there in my name because I was uh, a pretty good player, third baseman. And they assumed that uh, as soon as I grew up, I played professional ball which I did play with a barnstorming team for a couple of months, about six months, till I had my little finger kicking up a ball. Because back in those days, baseball parks that we played on had rocks on it, big as the ball. And the ball hit a rock and bounced awkwardly up. and hit me on my finger. And it puffed up, and I couldn't play my clarinet. And I said, well, that's the end of my baseball profession, I'm quitting. <laughs>
0: I can't think of anything more American than baseball and jazz. <laughs>
1: well, to be frank with you, jazz, I didn't know anything about jazz. They had one station, WBT in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is a big city. that had 50,000 watts, and we could pick up that station. But all they played was... Uh, country and western and they had one guy on there, I never will forget him named Grady Cole. He had one record, Louis Armstrong, playing Saint James Infirmary. And on the other side, I think it was a Bye Bye Blackbird. He played that every day. Both of those songs he them. And he just crack up with Louis Armstrong singing. <laughs> And that's the only jazz I heard when I was a kid. That's the only thing I heard.
0: What did you think of the country and Western music they were playing?
1: I love the music. You know, I loved it, you know. And I, 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 uh, I learned all of it. And, uh, you know, Hank Williams and Roy Cup and the Smoky Mountain Boys, Minnie Pearl and the Grand Ole Opry, all that. So I heard all of that when I was a kid the Carter family, Sons of the Pioneers, stuff like that. And I remember I could sing just about any song that he played. cause course, he played the same songs every day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, when he was playing the Louis Armstrong song, was that something that you just naturally liked?
1: Yeah, I liked that. I like that singing.
0: And I like the trumpet
1: playing, too. You know the way he played, and that uh, it kind of got me interested a little. And then, you know, later on as I got older, you know, in my teens, we we got a a, a radio where we could pick up the uh, stations from New York, and uh, I tuned in and I hear Duke Ellington's band, Count Basie, and Harry James, and uh, Benny Goodman. Both of them had a cigarette commercial show. I think it was a camel cigarette. I think it was. I can't possibly say that's who it was now, because I can't remember. But I tuned in for that to get the big band sound. I like that. Big band.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We were talking not long ago with our friend on this show, John Paradise, and we mentioned... You, Lou Donaldson. And he said, I saw him at the Village Vanguard back in 1993. Great alto player. And he said, and he sang too. And man, <laughs> he sang great. And then he started singing what you were singing. And uh, tell us a little bit about your singing in your live shows.
1: Well, I did that to uh, break the monotony of the music and give myself a rest, you know. After years and years and years of playing in clubs, you work on a system where you, you you have a system of playing and things that you do all the time. You know, it gives you a break. But you uh, you know that because I had a, a set I used to play. I would call them a feel them out set, and I'd play different kind of tunes, And whatever song they went for, like if they went for a blues, a ballad, or anything like that, a dance tune or something, that's what I'd I'd lay on the rest of the week because I knew that that's what they liked. And the musicians of the band used to crack up because it worked all the time, you know.
0: (laughs) So you would say it's very important to pay attention to your audience.
1: Well, these guys today, they don't have an audience, that's the problem because uh, the stuff they play is so confusing that a layman will just continue to talk while they play. I go to these uh, clubs now and I see uh, these bands playing and people are talking. You know, back then when we played, wasn't nobody talking. We, they'd be up in the, in the floor dancing once we started playing our, our music. Because the music had a different effect on them. today is a different, different thing.
0: So what do you do when you're a performer and you've got a tough crowd?
1: Well, we find something to settle them down. It's always a way to do it. Hmm. Music is one of the greatest mediums in the world for, for life. Because people get happy when you go to the hospital and you play music, you know. It's a great great sedative for people. And if people get to stomping, I mean, people get to talking, what we do, we play a fast tune, you know, and feature the drummer. He drown out all that talking, so they have to stop. (laughs) At least while he's playing, listen to the band.
0: Is there a song from the songs that you perform live that you have found Man, if I play this song, this oh, it gets them every time. They love it. What song is that?
1: Oh, well, I got several, you know, that I do, and I did them especially for, for that reason. Of course, Blues Walk, you know, you heard that? That was a big hit. Oh yeah. And the Masquerade is over, which is on the other side of the forty-five. That was a big hit on the jukebox. One of the first songs of Frank Wolf of the Blue record company that the distributors took from Blue Note all across country. Because, you know, Blue Note had some hard tunes to sell. Because back then, you know, they, they, they uh, had a lot of bebop records and had a lot of uh, uh, Dixieland records and stuff like that. And they had a lot of, they invested a lot of money into lonely's Monk. And back then, that music was very hard to sell. And he, he sent them to the distributor. And the distributor would send them right back to New York. <laughs> 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 and he told me mine was the one. He took out every time i sent send a record, they'd take it and put it on the jukebox. <laughs> Which a lot of people don't know. I see a lot of people now when they're talking about music and musicians, but uh, they don't really know the correct history. So you know, I had to just look at them and laugh. I used to give them an argument about it, but I don't do it anymore.
0: I was listing at the beginning of the interview some of the musicians that you played with. I'm curious to know, who knocked you not out? Only
1: did I, not only did I play with those musicians, I brought all those musicians myself to New York, to the Blue Note Records Company. I brought Grant Green from St. Louis, East St. Louis, Illinois, which is right across the river from St. Louis, Missouri. I brought him to New York myself. And uh, Bill Bill Hartman, uh, Blue Mitchell, Clifford Brown, I went down to hear him and brought him to and made his first date with me on Blue And Jimmy Smith I heard about from a uh, singer back there, Babs Gonzalez. Now, Babs was a guy that knew everything. If you wanted some information... About anybody in any kind of profession. <laughs> he knew about it. He knew everything. And he claimed that this guy from San, uh, from down in, uh, Wilmington, Delaware was going to upset the world with this organ. Which I, I, I never heard, I heard an organ that much. You know, I heard Mill Buckner playing a little and the wild Bill Davis, those people. But he played it a different way. And I said, man, we got to bring this guy into New York. And uh, Alfred Martin brought him in. And we made this record with Jimmy called The Sermon, which I'm sure you know of. Too long to play on the radio because (laughs) it's it's about about a half hour long.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Are there any saxophonists out there right now who are working that you respect a lot?
1: Well, actually, you know, uh, I don't know hardly anybody anymore, you know, that that I even listen to over two or three minutes, you know. Nobody's got any identity, and nobody, all of them play the same, you know. They go to school, they learn how to play, and they're wonderful musicians. Some of them wonderful technicians, but none of them have any ID. Like when I was coming up, you know, like Charlie Parker, and before Charlie Parker, I used to listen to Johnny Hodges, Tab Smith, Eddie Vincent, Cleanhead, you know, those kind of people. Way back in then During the bebop era, of course, I knew all the musicians. But today, I know most of the young musicians. I go to hear them play, you know. And all of them play just about the same, just about the same. I know Antonio Hodges real well. I know the guy plays with Roy Eldridge. What's his name? I'm uh, not Roy Eldridge. But it was Roy Haynes. Can't think of his name right now because I'm I'm not seeing now, But I'm I got Alzheimer's. Not Alzheimer's. <laughs> 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 I see a lot of guys around that play today. Jerry Weldon is a guy that I like, a saxophone player. Eric Alexander. I go to see him every Tuesday. He works down at Smoke in New York, the Smoke Club. And Peter Bernstein, of course, who worked with me. Joe Farnsworth and Mike Ladon, they got a uh, quartet down there. And I got to go down there just about every Tuesday. I can make it if it doesn't rain. Because if it rains, I don't, I don't go out, you know.
0: <laughs> I hear you.
1: But I have no, nobody really stands out right now. I, uh, Kenny Garrett is great, but you know, I don't, you know, he plays he plays a different kind of style that I would prefer. Although he's great, he's a great saxophone player.
0: Who have you played with that really knocked you out?
1: Well, I'll tell you the truth. When I made the record with Clifford Brown, you know, at Birdland, I would have played the job for no money. Because I just listened to him play. (laughs) He was was so far ahead that time of anybody else. And, of course, you know, I've heard Art Tatum, people like that. And I I couldn't believe what I was hearing. In fact, one night, I used to eat up at Wells, up on uh, 132nd. Sometimes we would add a chicken and waffle place. I'd go there every morning after I got off my job. I'd go up there and eat. <laughs> and I went up there one night and they were repairing the piano. Not the keys, but in the back where they have the shelf and all that stuff back in there. And I said, what happened? Did the piano fall? The guy said, no. I played him, played the set in here, tore it up.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> he tore the keys, played the keys right off the piano. And I got to hear him a couple of times. I couldn't believe it. And the only one that I ever did that to me was uh, Phineas Newborn. Phineas was the greatest piano player, young piano player, to play. But they never they never gave me any credit because his father was his manager. And his father wanted to check the contracts and talk about the money. And, you know, booking agents didn't want to hear that. If you start talking like that, they just fire you and get somebody else. Because there's a lot of people available. So Finney's never got famous. But he was the greatest piano player that I ever saw. I mean, in the, younger, the younger guys.
0: What about you? You know, you paid compliments to a couple of people there. What was the best compliment that you ever received?
1: Hard for me to say, you know. I'm a jazz master. I received a jazz master award, and I got uh, over in Japan one time. I got a lifetime achievement award, and I've got uh, several awards from uh, it was the International Jazz Hall of Fame. That really uh, was more powerful to me than anything because. I asked the guy, was he sure he was making the right, (laughs) picking the right guy? Because when I went to the Hall of Fame, he had Lyle Hampton and uh, Sweet Satterson and James Moody, Clark Jerry, you know, all those kind of people. They were there. And he already had put in Coleman Hawkins and Ben Webster, Don Byers, and uh, somebody else, I'm missing Earl Barsick who was a great saxophone player. A lot of people didn't know it because he wasn't strung out or anything like that. He he did his own business, and the promoters didn't like that, so they didn't give him any publicity. But he was a great saxophone player. And uh, what else? Remember, well, I got an award from the uh, United States Navy when I was in service. I was one of the first... 5,000 black uh, sailors to get a rank put on their sleeve. You know, before I went, I went in 1954. Before I went into the Navy, the only thing that a black sailor could do was be a, a steward's mate.
2: Hmm.
1: A cook, something like that. And they never they never got raided. And uh, we, we, we went up there and they put this uh, thing on our sleeve. Musician. And it was amazing. <laughs> it made, me, made me feel like I was a king. Because the guys below me would have to salute, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was powerful.
0: What would you say the secret of your success has been?
1: Well, the secret to my success is that in the first place, I loved what I was doing. And in the second place, I... Uh, I always traveled. I did more traveling than any any musician I know. That in the jazz category, we had bands that would go from New York down to California, uh, go down the East Coast from New York to uh, Florida. So tour they had dance halls in all the big cities called the Weinberg tour. But see, I took a band. I took my organ group. I went from New York all the way to California, and a lot of the. Uh, Jobs I used to book myself. And like I tell you, I had this feeling outset. So I knew the towns and I knew the people and I could go to them once or twice a year. So that kept me employed all the time. Then I'd come back to New York and play whatever I wanted to play. So I was in a good, good position. And then I had a wonderful life. Very lucky because I had several. Not, not, I would say, big hit records, but several good records. And, uh, I don't, you know, don't have to worry about anything, you know. So it's, uh, it was a pretty good, pretty good situation for me.
0: On that note, what is the best thing about being Lou Donaldson?
1: It's hard for me to say, except for being a human being, you uh, know. Very uh, sick guy. Kind of tough to deal with at times. Uh, but my daughter tells me I'm tough to deal with. She's taking care of me now. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, I was married for 55 years to the same girl from my hometown. I had a, a life like an average, average person. And then I had a musical side of my life. And I was, you know, another thing I'm telling you, I forgot to tell you, I'm very lucky because I used to like, I told you I was a baseball player, and I was sitting up in the stands when Bobby Thompson hit the home run. I was in the bleachers, which I paid a dollar seventy-five to sit. It was so away, so far away from the thing, and it was in the after in that afternoon game. And I didn't really see the ball until he hits the stand because, you know, as far away as I was, the ball, you could see the pitcher throw the ball, but you couldn't see it. After the after the after people hit it, you just watched the outfielders and infielders. Whichever one moved, you knew he was going after the ball. And when he hit the ball, nobody moved. <laughs> and I saw the crowd up in Section 21 at the polo grounds all of them jump up, so I knew it was a home run. And then I really knew it was a home run when I saw Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese throw their gloves down on the ground and start walking towards the, <laughs> you know, the, the dressing room. And Eddie Stanky, who was with the Giants, ran down the third baseline and jumped up into Leo Roche's arms. Leo Roche was the manager, but that day he was coaching third. So I knew it was a home run. That was that was a great great time. <laughs> and another time uh, that that you to know my life. Well, you know I told you where I'm from, and nobody had a shortwave radio when I was a kid. And we used to have the fights with Joe Louis. And the night he knocked out Max Spelling, my father had got his team out of Ford, the kind he used to have to crank up. We drove about five miles out to a house where a guy had a shortwave radio and he had it up in the tree because about 50, 60 people were there. And he would, uh, he would cook, uh, fish, beans, and rice and sell everybody, you know, $25 a plate. Because a lot of the people came with horse and buggy. And they had a long way to go. And we used to listen to that, uh, the fight in that tree. <laughs> and the shortwave radio would go in and out and in and out. But somewhere that night it didn't ever go out. We got to hear the whole thing. <laughs> the whole fight. We shouldn't last but about one round anyway. <laughs> but that was that was a dramatic part of my life when I was a kid.
0: Hmm. You know, the other night it was it was complete darkness and I was listening to your version. That you recorded of Over the Rainbow. Was that, is that a special song to you? Oh,
1: yeah, it is a special song to me, you know. I used to use that all the time for my ballad. When I played my first set of music, I always played that as a ballad. And uh, especially powerful with the uh, recording. Was it with an organ player?
0: I think so. Yeah.
1: Especially, yeah, special record with the organ. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful sound. And see, the way I play saxophone, a kind of combination between swing and bebop, you know. So I'm in between there, so I I know how to play a ballad, because a lot of kids today, you never hear the melody. They're so anxious to want to start improvising them, too. Actually, they improvise through the melody. People never get the melody. See, cause back when I played, they would have been fired, you know, after one song. Cause people back then they listened to what you played, and they would sing along with you, or hum along with you. And if you didn't, if you didn't play stuff that they could sing and hum, they didn't like it.
0: What is it you like about music?
1: Well, I like about music it keeps you alive. That's what I say. It's got rhythm. Got rhythm, rhythm in it, rhythm in it. And that rhythm breathes life into you, especially when you're born. As I was saying, when I played a ballad, I used to just imagine the melody while I was playing it. Lester Young told me that one time. See, when he played a ballad, he would be singing in his saxophone the same thing that he's playing, playing on his horn. (laughs) And I started doing that myself. And I found out. That it rejected more to the people when you did that. It was amazing, but you don't know, secrets like that. But you pick up if you ask people; they'll tell you. And you, as you know, rhythm, rhythm, uh, determines everything in the world. You know, because if you got a leg ache, a toe ache, or an ear ache, anything, first thing a doctor does is get out of the stethoscope <laughs> and listen to listen to your heart. Before he even examines your leg or something. Because he knows if, you, if your heart is not beating right, you've got problems. <laughs> <laughs> the same way with music. If, you, if the music, the beat is not there, you got problems. That's why these guys, they, on the drums, they want to play so much stuff. A lot of bands got a lot of problems. Because the people never feel the rhythm of the music.
0: <laughs> well, wow, very well put. All the listeners, if they want to find out more, it's lewdonaldson.com. In closing, what would you like to say to all of our listeners out there, young, old, wherever they are?
1: Well, the listeners, I want to say thank everybody for patronizing uh, my music and, uh, and, uh, and that I appreciate it because uh, I've seen a lot of musicians who... You know, when they do interview, you get, get them on TV and they usually come up with the artistic thing about, the, well, I played this. I didn't care if I didn't make any money and all that. But see, I know they're joking because anybody that plays music, bebop or whatever it is, Spanish music, anything, if you don't pay them at the end of the night, you got problems. They might say they, 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 they don't like nothing but art, but uh, if they say art, they must mean you know, i take them. Because <laughs> <laughs> all of them I've been around, at the end of the night, regardless of what album, they want to get paid. Of course. But me, I played, and I knew stuff was going to work because, see, when I made my records, as you can see, they're much different from other, other people. Because other people, a lot of these musicians that they, they rave about and rank about how great they are, some of those guys never even left New York. They didn't know anything about playing music at all. Because I used to travel all over the country. And uh, when I'd come back to New York, I'd record with my band. And everything was tight. You know, everything was tight, just like anything. It was like a mechanical machine. So these records are much different. Plus, we had the greatest uh, sound man in the world, Rudy Van Gelder, and he had different kind of equipment that makes the record sound much different. I was listening to records record the other night, uh, Live at the Cadillac, where I played Sputnik. am oh, not Sputnik. I played uh, the Scorpion. Scorpion. That, that record is so great, I didn't realize it, but I just happened to listen to it. And the, the way it's set up, you could hear every part, every every instrument, everything was great. And the groove, it started on one, and it stayed right there until the thing ended. Of course, I had the, the great Idris uh, Moranman on drums, and it was, it was a great record. It's a great record. You anybody wants to hear something about that, you know, Live at the Cadillac Club.
0: Live at the Cadillac Club.
1: Yeah course, you know, my, my big hits like that, I get the Boogaloo and Midnight Creeper. One story I can tell you before I leave, I worked over in uh, Italy. Up in Puccio, Puccio, Italy, up in the mountains, where they have a big festival every year. And uh, at the end of the night, my set ended at 12 o'clock. So I played, uh, you know. <laughs> And and the amazing thing about it, when I came, I was in the mountains. It was about 10 feet of snow, but still everybody came out to the the concert. And when I came out, it was a soccer team, guys that came in playing soccer. They had lined up at the door. And as I walked out through the door, you know what they were singing? Watch that. Midnight Creeper. And they sang it, and when I walked, they followed me down the street. All the way to uh, 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 McDonald's, because we went to get a hamburger after we uh finished eating. And when I came back out of the shop, they started singing to the outside. <laughs> it was amazing. I, I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it.
0: Well, Lou Donaldson, thank you very much for sharing with us. Thank you for being a guest. It's a great honor to talk to you.
1: Yeah, it's good to speak to you, too, and I appreciate your 16 years of music. And I'm glad you got a chance to play some of my stuff.
0: Absolutely, and it's an honor.
1: Because that's what I, that's what I made it for, something to be oh, well, I'm a little autistic, but I still want to uh, I uh, want well, the public to public appreciate it.
0: Well, just know that there are so many people around the world who appreciate what you've created.
1: I'm very fortunate because I have, uh, I know, I, I would say, I know a, a close to a million people. I know, I get calls and, and stuff from people overseas all the time. It's amazing. Some of them still Play my music, you know. They're old as I am, but they're still playing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. All right, sir, until next time.
1: All right, and keep up the good work.
0: Thank you very much. I wish you a great night.
1: All right, same to you. Don't forget to tell everybody, I'll be, three weeks from now, I'll be 93, so. That's okay. right. Yeah, so it's November 1st.
0: November 1st. So
1: I'm going to keep on keeping, and uh, I don't play a lot professionally, but if they just want to hit me that bad, I'll I'll pull it out and play it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, sir.
1: All right, have a good one.
0: Have a good day. And you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you for listening to the Lou Donaldson interview, recorded October 11th, 2019 produced October 11th and 12th, 2019, corresponding with 16 years of interview content. We wish you happiness, music, and most of all, love. But get back the a Goodbye.